Welcome back to the Modus Morandi podcast. I'm your host, Thomas Hikaru Clark. You can connect with me at Modus Morandi on Twitter and Instagram to stay up to date on the latest episodes, submit questions, or provide feedback. I'd really appreciate it if you could share with one or two friends or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. The guest for this podcast episode is Tez Clark. Tez is a PhD student in philosophy at NYU. Her main area of interest is epistemology, which is the study of knowledge. Without further ado, here's the episode with Tez Clark. Hope you enjoy. Hi, Tez. How are you doing today? I'm good, Thomas. How are you? Good, good. So where are you, where are you at currently? Uh, so I'm calling from New York, the Upper West Side. Oh, nice. How are things over there? It's really good. It's really, it's a really hot day. Um, I was out at the park. There are a lot of people out. Um, I think most people around here are getting vaccinated, so it feels very, very safe. Do people still wear masks outside? Um, After the CDC changed the policy? Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of no masks around. I personally like wearing the mask. Um, so I have it on unless I'm in the park and sort of there aren't too many people around. Cool, cool. Cool. Well, it's, it's really great to have you on. Um, and I'm excited for the, for the conversation. And usually what I do at the beginning is just ask people to do a brief like self-introduction, brief uh, bio, so we can just have some context and background on where you're coming from. So would you mind just, yeah, introducing yourself, talking a little bit about your, um, yeah, just your path to get where you are, what you're currently doing um, and stuff like that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I guess I should start off by noting for people who are listening who don't know, I'm Thomas's sister. Um, Oh gosh, conflict (laughs) of interest. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Hopefully that's okay to say. Um, And I am currently in the second year of my PhD in philosophy at NYU, New York University. So I guess my background, I graduated from Harvard in 2018 where I studied philosophy as an undergrad. I wrote my thesis on a topic known as the ethics of belief. We can get more into that later on. And then the year following graduation, I was in Cambridge uh, at Trinity College where I was a Harvard Cambridge scholar studying history and philosophy of science uh, for, for, for my MPhil. And then after that, I went directly to NYU. And now I'm here. So, yeah. Cool. Very nice. Yeah. Very, very awesome. Um, yeah, I think it's worth noting that we graduated from our undergrad in the same year, 2018, but we are not twins for those who may be wondering. Right. Yeah. Uh, I took I took time off in college, so I'm actually a year older than Thomas. Yeah. Well, and I'm also young for my grade, so actually we're closer to, like what? Closer to two years, honestly, than one year, but Isn't yeah. it like 18 months or something? Something like that. Something yeah. like that. Um, cool. Awesome. So I might just dive right in with a couple questions that I had, although obviously we will probably ramble and go, go off of these questions. But I was wondering if you could start by just maybe yeah, describing epistemology, which is your field, for a lay audience. Uh, and you mentioned you know, ethics of belief. Um, and you know, I know what the words in that mean. I know what ethics means. I know what belief means. And I certainly know what of means. But um, yeah, I, I'm just like, in, in this context, first, can you maybe just describe epistemology, what, it, what that is? 
In fact, your phone, I know, happen to know, has the word epistemology uh, written on its phone case. So I, I know that you'll have a good answer for this. And then, yeah, maybe just describe what exactly sort of your subfield within that is. Yeah, yeah, great. So that's a great place to start. Um, so very roughly, epistemology is the study of knowledge. Um, so one of the sort of central questions in epistemology is what is knowledge? You know, it seems like we use this word all the time, but what exactly does it mean? So an example of why this might be an interesting question um, is that you might initially think, oh, you know, knowledge is just a justified true belief, right? So it has to be justified. It can't just be a guess that luckily happens to be right. It has to be true, right? You can't know something that's false. And then of course you have to believe it, right? Like if you if you know something that you believe that it's the case. Um, so it seems like justified true belief is a good proxy for knowledge. However, um, there was this really famous paper by this philosopher Edmund Gettier, and he argues actually there can be cases of justified true belief that is not knowledge. So his example goes kind of like this. Let's say that you're in an office and your coworker, Carl, um, tells you that he owns a Ford. Like that's a, that's a model, the, the, the make of his car. Um, so he tells you, yeah, I own a Ford. You see him driving a Ford. You know, he has like a t-shirt that says like proud owner of a Ford, you know, something like that. Um, so you get a lot of evidence that someone in your office owns a Ford. Um, and that's what you believe. You believe someone in my office owns a Ford. Specifically, you believe that Carl owns a Ford. But let's say that it turns out that this has all been an elaborate conspiracy by Carl to trick you into believing that he owns a Ford. Actually, he doesn't own a Ford, he owns a Honda. Um, but it just so happens, you know, coincidentally, that there's this other person in your office who you've never spoken to who does own a Ford. So in this case, you have a belief that someone owns a Ford in your office. It's true because of this random other person. And it's also justified because Carl has given you a lot of evidence for why, um, why you should think that he owns a Ford. So this is a justified true belief, but a lot of people, myself included, have the intuition that, wait a second, this isn't knowledge. There's something weird going on here. Um, in large part because although your belief is true, the facts in the world that make it true are different from the facts that are sort of part of your evidence. So this gave rise uh, to kind of a whole industry of thinking about what knowledge is, but epistemology is now a lot broader than that. So we can ask not only what is knowledge, but what are some other mental states we might have. Um, so one topic that's getting a lot of interest now is do we, might there be another state um, aside from knowledge, something like understanding. So for example, it seems like you can come to know a lot about history, for example, by memorizing a lot of facts in a history book but they might not make sense to you. You might not be able to grasp how all those facts relate to each other or anything like that. Um, anyone who's ever crammed for an exam probably is familiar with that experience. Or been on a trivia Or been on a trivia competition, yeah, exactly. Right? Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you can, gain, you can gain a lot of knowledge by rote memorization, but do you really understand the topic that well? Understand it, say, in the same way that someone who's an expert in that field, like an expert historian or an expert scientist or what have you, in the way that they understand the topic? Um, intuitively, there's a difference there. So 
what's the difference between knowledge and this, this other state that philosophers call understanding? That's a topic that falls within the purview of epistemology. Um, or another set of questions that people are interested in is not only what is knowledge, but how can we go about getting knowledge? So questions about the process of inquiry. And this includes questions like, you know, what sort of questions should we open inquiry into? Um, can I just wonder about anything or is it more rational for me to wonder about certain types of questions? Um, or what process should I follow if I want to be the best possible inquirer? What kind of evidence should I look out for? Um, and what kinds of evidence, if any, should I, should I avoid? So all those questions about knowledge, how to get it, how, it, how knowledge relates to other parts of our mental life, those all fall within the purview of epistemology. Wow, yeah, that's really cool. I remember first coming across that Gettier example. I, I think you definitely mentioned it at one point when we are maybe like sitting around the family dinner table, but um, I, I recently read a version of this that was talking about like the like a Wimbledon example. I don't know if you're familiar with this or like you're watching tennis on TV and then like, I, let's say like Nadal is playing. It's basically the same thing. Like Nadal is playing in the final match and then like, you know, for some reason, like right at the winning moment, they like the the broadcast gets cut or something there's some problem and then so like in a panic the people at the broadcasting office just like put in last year's uh recording of the final moments of the game to like hoping that no one will notice the difference like after the ad break and then so in last year's version like nadal also won so then watching that on tv without knowing that it was switched with last year's you think that nadal won but actually in real life he did win again so you you have a belief that Nadal won. It's justified because you saw it on TV and no one told you that it was actually secretly last year's match. And, like, it happens to be true because he just happened to win again. But it's, uh, it's uh, you know, it sort of seems fishy that, you know, it, it got swapped out. It, it, yeah, it's like, is that really knowledge? Or, yeah, so, so I don't know. Um, it's definitely an interesting topic. And then um, what you mentioned about, like, just taking it broader and looking at things like understanding I'm personally super interested in that right now as well because I'm trying to like well one of the things I'm doing right now in my, my program is working on natural language processing with like machine learning and trying to figure out how to infuse knowledge into like machine learning models for language which is um yeah like are tricky. these are these machine learning that you're trying to replicate like human language yeah 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 so yeah. So, I mean, it's definitely a very important field. I think whatever you in philosophy can sort of identify about how exactly knowledge, I guess, gets formed in the human mind. I mean, while it's not completely analogous to how machines may process it, I think it's definitely relevant, or at least there's, there's room for, um, yeah, some, some interdisciplinary type of things there. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. Um, so... I, yeah, I mentioned understanding and one of the parts of understanding that I'm really interested in is can it be the case that sometimes your understanding is better um, either the less you know about a topic or maybe like the more you forget about a topic or the less you pay attention to certain aspects of the topic. Um, so where I'm coming from is I think a lot of people not just in philosophy, but I think in general, have this thought that it's better to know more things. Um, certainly it's better to know more about topics that you're interested in. Um, more knowledge is always better, those sorts of things. Um, 
And that sounds really intuitive, but we also have to consider the fact that if we kind of overburden or overload ourselves with too much information about a topic, then sometimes it can be hard to notice the most important patterns um, or the, the most important kind of big picture parts of a problem. You know, for instance, so again, I think we can kind of go back to the, the example of someone who's, you know, cramming trivia or cramming for a test. Um, it seems like one of the reasons that that's a problem is that you don't uh, differentiate between the pieces of information that are sort of big picture, kind of overarching headers um, in your knowledge about the topic. And then information that's kind of more trivial, um, just kind of interesting details that we don't have to get into. Um, and that's something that's true, you know, it seems intuitively for humans. Um, but I've also recently read about some work, actually, I think sent to me through your friend Hope, um, that involved people working in AI trying to implement this idea of um, what, what they call it is sort of like making certain aspects of a topic more salient than others and only sort of attending to certain aspects of a topic. Um, and this, this kind of idea about salience or attention and what's, what it's rational to pay attention to or rational to find salient both for humans and then for, um, for any type of like algorithm or anything like that. That's something that I think is, is a really kind of ripe field for like interdisciplinary work in those areas. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's actually interesting that you mentioned. I wonder what paper it was that, that she sent. She didn't send me that paper. But um, yeah, there's a famous paper in, in machine learning called Attention is All You Need. And it's all about how this, what they call an attention mechanism, is sort of this fundamental building block of, of like neural networks. And basically, it allows paying attention to certain parts of an input across like basically arbitrarily long distances. Um, so it's sort of... Um, if you have a long sequence, obviously only some parts of that sequence are gonna be important for uh, predicting a certain output. Let's say it's like machine translation, when you're like, you know, different languages will have different word orders, so you can't just like look at the first word of the English sentence and then output the first word of the French sentence, look at the second word of the English, output the second word of the French. Like, depending on where you are in the output, you need to learn to where to pay attention to in the input. Um, but if you just try to remember everything that gets like too long and can't actually feed all that input in at one time, so then this attention mechanism is actually incredibly useful in being able to um, attend to different important parts of, of the uh, sentence. And they find these actually really interesting emergent behaviors where sort of without explicitly telling it to do this and just by training it on lots of examples, you'll find these different attention patterns where you know certain things will, they'll like attend to I mean, I don't, I don't remember the exact examples, but it was sort of like, it's quite interesting, the patterns of attention that just sort of um, arise, you know, um, almost sort of, I guess, spontaneously based on this um, unsupervised training on just a large amount of uh, text input, for example. Um, so yeah, it's, it's like definitely cool that there's, I guess, there's overlap between philosophy and computer science, between philosophy and linguistics, which kind of leads me, I guess, to another question that I had, which is, do you consider philosophy to be a humanities field or a STEM field or some combination of both or neither? Yeah, no, I think that's a really good question. I think, I think philosophy is a little bit of maybe like an ugly duckling in this sense because it's, I think it, well, I think two things. I think one, it doesn't fit really neatly into this STEM humanities kind of dichotomy. 
And I also think that that's true of philosophy as a whole, but is also partially explained by the fact that I think philosophy is a very diverse field. Um, so, you know, there's, when people think of philosophy, I think oftentimes a lot of people who aren't familiar with the field think of things like, you know, Plato and Aristotle, um, sort of the famous ancient philosophers, or maybe they think of sort of 20th century continental philosophers like Sartre, um, or the, you know, the other existentialists, people like that. Um, but, but of course those are only like very small portions of philosophy. And in fact, that those two, um, those two subdisciplines don't really comprise a, the sort of central work that's being done in contemporary analytic philosophy, although of course both are really important. Um, so, you know, there's philosophy of physics, philosophy of mind, philosophy of biology. Um, and those areas are gonna, I think, look a lot more like STEM fields in part because a lot of philosophers in those areas either have extensive training in their respective um, STEM fields, like for example, extensive training in physics, or they collaborate a lot with practicing physicists, biologists, scientists, etc. cetera. Um, and then there's gonna be you know, fields like aesthetics or ethics, places like that, or philosophy of literature. Um, and those might look or feel more like humanities uh, subjects in some way. But I will say that I think one, one aspect of philosophy that makes it, I think, importantly different from a lot of other fields in the humanities is that it's not so interested in, or, you know, non-historical philosophy. So, you know, not like philosophy, uh, like ancient Greek philosophy, or not like, um, like ancient Chinese philosophy or something like that. But kind of contemporary philosophy is less interested in interpretations for the most part and more interested in sort of solving puzzles and applying logic or reason to try to kind of understand these issues and I think that makes it a lot more similar to something like math or se theoretical computer science than something mm -hmm. like um, you know an English department where the, the the goal seems to largely be different ways of interpreting a text or something like that um, and in my experience I know like a good number of people who initially were physicists or mathematicians or computer scientists who then made the switch into philosophy. But I know, I don't even know if I know what, know personally, I, I'm sure such people exist, but I don't think I know personally a single person who was in uh, a different humanities field who switched into to philosophy. And I think that kind of just, it's obviously it's, um, you know, those are just the people I know, but I think it tells you just like an interesting sociological fact about the kind of people um, or the kinds of like thinking styles that gel well with philosophy. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really fascinating. I see a similar dynamic, I guess, in linguistics, where I always tell people like linguistics is the broadest field that you've never heard of because no one even knows. <laughs> like when I tell people linguistics, they have no idea what it is. They're like, oh, like, wow, you're such a good linguist. You speak so many languages or whatever, you know, it's just stuff like that. Philosophy is probably the only thing I could give linguistics a run for its money in terms of like how broad it is though, because it seems like, yeah, there's just like anything under the sun can be philosophy in some way. Um, like, yeah, I have friends doing both, uh, you know, uh, ancient, uh, ancient Greek philosophy. I have friends doing ancient Chinese philosophy. And I'm sure that's like, you know, just very, very different. Like, you know, I have a friend who's like learning Chinese so that he can like study Chinese philosophy. And, you know, I'm sure that's very different than like what I've seen you do where you're like teaching logic over the summer to undergrads or like, um, you know, coming up with these puzzles and like, um, analyzing these um, 
epistemological questions and, and all that. But yeah, linguistics is kind of similar where there'll be people doing very logic-y, philosophy-ish things. There'll be people doing historical linguistics, you know, going back through like archives and seeing how languages have changed over time. There are people doing um, psycholinguistics where they're literally doing experiments with people, participants, and looking at reaction times, looking at MRIs, looking at that kind of stuff. There's computational linguistics, uh, like computer science, machine learning people, who basically are just coders who are interested in language. Um, yeah, so it can, it can really be anything um, super, super broad. Um, so yeah, that's, that's interesting to hear that, that that's the case. I mean, that must make it kind of hard to, I guess, find like a department, right? Where it's like, you know, so much is dependent upon like who you're, you're working with and the environment. Um, like if you just say, oh, this place is, has philosophy, like, great. I mean, that, that's probably not going to cut it. You have to like, I guess, do some more, do some more like looking and searching to like find, I don't know, this might be wrong, but to, to, to find like a place where, you know, your interests are represented. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe one interesting difference between the way in which philosophy is broad and the way in which linguistics is broad is, um, I guess, like, the broad the broadnesses are sort of inverse of each other. So what I mean by that is, based on the, the kind of types of linguistics that you mentioned, uh, the broadness seems to stem from different methodologies, um, but they're all sort of interested in analyzing language in different ways. Um, mm -hmm. It's just that the methodologies are, are different, right? So, like, there's, like, the kind of sort of looking at, his, like, the historical corpus work, for instance, or there's the people who, like, do, um, you know, like, like, experiments on people and, like, look at their, like, reaction times and things like that. Or there's, you know, the people who um, seem to work most closely with philosophers are, like, the semanticists who are, like, interested in, like, what these, like, words can, like, mean and kind of, like, using sort of different cases to figure out, like, you know, if if I use a counterfactual in this way, like, do native speakers like accept that, or do they do they find it infelicitous? Um, so it, there's like lots of different kind of methodologies at play, whereas I feel, but like the kind of the subject matter is is a shared subject of of language and words, syntax and semantics. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and I think philosophy is a little bit the opposite of that. Is that the subject matter can be very different. It can be you know physics. It can be you know, works of literature or art. It can be how we should think. It should it can be how we should be, behave. It can be, you know, what what does it mean for something to exist? Um, so the, the 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 subjects can all be very different, but I think the methodology is a little more unified. Um, mm, interesting. Okay. And it's sort of hard to explain what exactly that methodology is, other than something like very slow and careful thinking. Um, I think there's like, you know, different styles and different ways of cashing that out. So there are some people who are really interested in just looking at our ordinary language and analyzing that. Um, there are other people who are sometimes into experimental results, but I think largely there there is maybe more of a unified um, method of analysis in philosophy. Yeah. And so I think the reason I bring that up is just to say that I've, I've been sort of pleasantly surprised, I think, in graduate school to find that some of the best conversations I had with people about my work were with professors who actually worked on really different topics than me. Interesting. Okay. Um, but like with with that kind of they it came a you know a, maybe a slightly different perspective or they were able to point me towards you know papers or books that um, I wouldn't otherwise have heard of. But I did feel like we were able to to, to talk to each other um, and get yeah. a lot out of those conversations, even though we were working on really different problems. 
Yeah, yeah. And you guys all use the same lingo. Like anytime you hear someone say cashing out and they're not actually talking about money, like that person is 100% of the time a philosopher. I guarantee it. Um, yeah, yeah. No, this is true. Or like, what was the one that I said the other day? Oh yeah, I always say like, you might think blah, blah, blah. Like, okay, other people can say you might think, but okay, I, yeah, I point taken though. There are certain things that only philosophers say that, yeah, totally out. give it away. Yeah. Um, cool. So yeah, to, to get more into, I guess, specifics of, of what you do, would you mind, I guess, talking about a couple of things that, that you personally have written that you are proud of? So it doesn't have to be like a published work. I mean, it can be, but is anything like for, for a class or in undergrad or now in your PhD or in your master's, like whatever, just something, a paper or piece that you've written um, that it addresses an idea that you think is powerful or interesting or beautiful um and yeah what is what it is and why you're proud of it would you be able to perhaps yeah, yeah. walk us through one of those or a couple of those yeah sure uh so yeah so i want to start with this one um i'll take a little bit of setup um but i think it's interesting so we can ask um like it seems like there's rules that we have about how we should live right rules like you know don't kill or rules like believe what your evidence tells you um rules about how to act and how to believe very large, very generally. Yeah. Um, and we can ask, it seems, two different types of questions about those rules. So one question we can ask is, what specific rules are the right ones? So we can ask, you know, is it morally acceptable to eat animals? Um, or we can ask, you know, is there ever a case where it's okay to uh, trust your friend even though you know, you're not really sure if what they're saying is true or something like that, but you just trust them simply because they're your friend. Um, is it true that we should always believe in accordance with our evidence? Um, is it true that, um, you know, we shouldn't kill or something like that? So we can ask like what the actual rules are. <laughs> so that's one kind of question. Another kind of question we can ask is, what does it even mean to say something is a rule in this way? So for example, when we say something like, you know, it's wrong to kill people, what does that mean? Does that mean that there's, you know, a fact in the matter, fact of the matter in the world somewhere that we can point to um, that's objective, that says killing is wrong? Does that mean that, you know, this is just an opinion and it's in our head and it's somehow dependent on what our beliefs or desires are? Um, so we can ask these types of questions. Um, that aren't about the specific rules that there are, but what it means to be a rule in general and how those rules relate to us. Uh, does that kind of distinction make sense? I think so, yeah. 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 So the kind of first sort of, first sort of question, like what are the rules that are out there? Yeah. What are the rules that are true? Um, you know, is it okay to eat meat? Um, is it wrong to kill people? Those sorts of questions. Yeah. Um, that's kind of called, those are called first order questions. Okay. Um, and then the second set of questions, you know, what does it mean for something to be a rule? Um, are these independent of us in some way or are they purely subjective? Those types of questions are called higher order, higher order questions. Um, okay. They're higher Got order yeah. because they're about the first order questions. Yeah, they're kind of like one step up meta, meta layer. Exactly. Thinking. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, and sort of traditionally, these two questions got treated sort of separately in philosophy. So there would be people, what 
people who are called like ethicists deal with first order questions about you know what's morally right or wrong um, epistemologists deal with first order questions about what you should believe and then separately there would be people asking the higher order questions so meta-ethicists are people who would be asking the questions like you know are these subjective or objective like what does it mean for something to be a rule um, is it like a thing in the world world that's out there the way like a rock is out there in the world or is it like something else like more supernatural seeming mm -hmm. that's kind of like a meta ethics question and then similar thing there'd be like sort of meta meta epistemological questions um, but the two orders the first order and the higher order were treated separately um, and what I'm currently interested in and something that I wrote a paper on recently is basically trying to push back against treating these two orders as totally separate and instead suggesting hey it might be that whatever answers we give to for example the higher order questions constrain the answers that we can give to the first order questions and potentially vice versa but the, the, the case that I'm considering is the answers that we give to the higher order questions me, means that we um, have to reject certain answers to the first order questions. Mm -hmm. And in particular, I argue that certain views in metaethics, so certain views about what it means to say, you know, something is right or something is wrong, um, are incompatible with... Um, certain really intuitive norms about what to believe. Um, for Do you have example, a concrete example? Oh, sorry, yeah, you were about to mention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like certain, like, so for example, like it's really intuitive to say that um, your belief should be consistent in a certain way. So for example, you know, if I believe that there's, I, if I believe that it's going to rain tomorrow, um, I shouldn't also believe that my evidence doesn't support that it's going to rain tomorrow. Right? Okay, yeah. It seems like if I, if I think yeah, that, that my evidence... Yeah, that seems to be completely contradictory. It, it seems seem. like very contradictory. And a lot of people have this intuition that someone who believes, I don't have any evidence that it's going to rain tomorrow, but it's going to rain tomorrow. Someone who says something like that seems to be incoherent, basically. Um, so that's a kind of an example of a type of coherence requirement on what we should believe. We shouldn't believe certain kinds of inconsistencies. Um, similarly for actions, we shouldn't act in certain inconsistent ways. Um, but I want to say that some views in metaethics can't like account for why we'd have these sorts of consistency rules. Um, and that's going to be, I think, a problem for those views because a lot of what these views are going to want to say is, Oh, like we can we can account for why we have the rules that we seem to have. That gives it some kind of intuitive support to these rules, um, and that's really important for reasons about philosophical methodology that we don't have to get into right now. Um, I personally am of the view that these metaethical views that I'm targeting might actually be right, and it's just actually the sort of first order rules like don't be incoherent in that way that are incorrect. Um, but I sort of leave it open about which direction uh, the reader, the reader of the paper wants to go. But so basically just like in some, the, the sort of interesting thought is 
people have often tried to differentiate these sort of first order questions from these higher order questions. I don't think anyone genuinely believes that these two things are distinct, but just they were like always treated as sort of separate subfields. Um, and the thought was, you know, you can pick your first order answers and pick your higher order answers and then kind of plug them together, which whatever you pick. And I basically want to say, I don't think that's true. I think your, your answers to the higher order stuff uh, partially determine the answers that you can give to the first order stuff and vice versa. Okay, yeah. So I got, I got that, but I'm not sure I got the example. So can, can maybe just one more time for me, can you explain an example of a higher order belief that you might have that then invalidates certain first order beliefs? Yeah, okay. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think because the one that I am targeting in the paper is like a, a pretty complicated like philosophical view. So these, these aren't, these wouldn't just be like straightforward everyday things. Like it wouldn't be like, or it's mostly like pretty complicated examples. Yeah. So the, how do I, Put this simply um basically like the view in question is a view on which this is a, the higher order view remember that yeah. it's asking questions like you know what does it mean for something to be a rule yeah. that, that kind of thing um so this is a higher order view on which what rules or you know values or reasons we have um aren't objective they depend purely on what we desire um and when there is any sort of conflict um in what we desire then we have to basically reason um we have to like reason to like the most consistent answer of what we desire and that's going to tell us like what our reasons are so let me give a concrete example of how this works so let's say that I want to go to Rome. And let's say that I know that in order to go to Rome from New York, I have to buy a plane ticket. Um, it seems intuitively I have a reason to buy a plane ticket, right? Like the fact that I want to go to Rome gives me reason to buy a plane ticket. What this view says is the fact that I have a reason is explained by the fact that since I desire to go to Rome and I know that buying a plane ticket is necessary to get to Rome, then just as like a matter of my psychology, I also come to desire buying a plane ticket. And if I didn't come to desire buying a plane ticket, then it wouldn't really be correct to say that I, um, I desire going to Rome in the right sort of way, uh, in the right sort of sense of desire. I might have something very similar to a desire, um, but it's not like a real desire because someone with a real desire would also desire buying a plane ticket since it's necessary to buy a plane ticket to get to Rome and satisfy the going to Rome desire. Um, okay. So this is, this is like a view that's called constructivism. There are lots of different types of it, um, but what's notable about it is it's an anti-realist anti view. It says that the rules are in some sense in our head and subjective rather than out there in the world. Um, so when this, according to constructivists, when we say things like it's wrong to kill people, 
it's not actually wrong to kill people out there in the world. It's just that for beings with our psychology, um, we like desire not killing people. We desire that kind of rule. Um, and likewise also for rules about how to believe. Will we say we should form our beliefs based on the evidence? Constructivists will say it's not because there's anything special about forming our beliefs based on the evidence, not in any objective sense, but rather that um, we just so happen to desire to believe in that way. And usually they'll tell some kind of evolutionary story about okay. how people who didn't desire to believe in that way ended up, you know, forming their belief on like what made them makes them happy or what they think is funny. And then they got like killed by tigers because they like didn't have true beliefs about like where the tigers were or something like that. Okay. Yeah. So wait. So that's the high order belief. Yeah, that's that's a high. So order then, what's belief, yeah. what's the first order belief that then that is has a I guess in, impact. Yeah. So the impact. So okay. So that was constructivism. So that was uh, yeah the higher order theory. And what's really important to this theory is a the thought that there is a kind of. Um, like evolutionary story, right? That you have to tell about what kind of rules we have, right? So, and it, it's very plausible for a lot of things. So, you know, like the only believe what your evidence tells you, but it's a plausible evolutionary story that we can tell because it's usually really beneficial to believe what your evidence says because that's gonna be a good way to believe what's true and having true beliefs about, you know, where the food is or where the predators are. That's like evolutionarily a good thing. Um, and likewise, things like, you know, don't kill your children is going to be evolutionarily good because if you kill your children, you're not going to be able to, like, pass down your genes. So the view was kind of importantly tied to being able to give a kind of, like, evolutionary story. Um, and I want to argue following some, I want to argue basically that we can't have a plausible evolutionary story for the kind of rules about coherence in your belief set. Um, so I'm gonna have to draw another distinction here. So there seems to be two kinds of rules about how you should believe. So the first kinds of rules are what we call substantive rules. They're substantive because they tell you like a specific substantive thing to believe based on the evidence you have. So for example, if I see that there's a glass in front of me on the table, then I should believe there's a glass on the table. Um, that's like, a, I should like specifically believe like there is a glass on the table. That needs to be like the substantive content of what I believe. In contrast to that kind of rule, there are also structural rules about what I should believe. So for example, um, let's say that I believe that I'm Superman. Like obviously that's false. Um, I don't have any evidence that I'm Superman. Well, of course you would say that even if you were Superman, though. But. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is yeah, all part of like my conspiracy. But yeah, so if I believe that I'm Superman, that itself is not following the substantive norms. However, if I believe that I'm Superman, it seems like, okay, even though that's crazy, I should at least also believe that um, I should also believe that I can fly given that Superman can fly. And if I were someone who simultaneously, you know, I believe that I'm Superman, I believe that Superman can fly, but I don't believe that I can fly. 
there seems to be something incoherent going on there. Um, even though, of course, there's another sense in which I shouldn't believe that I can fly because it's, it's false and I don't have any evidence to support that. So that kind of coherence rule about uh, coherent belief is what we call a structural rule. It's structural because it has to do with the structure of beliefs and how they relate to each other. And basically what I want to argue is that constructivism can't give us the structural rules because there are going to be a lot of cases where um, the structural rules will say one thing about what to believe and the substantive rules will say a different thing about what to believe. And while there's like a plausible evolutionary story about why we would adopt the substantive rules, there, I argue, isn't going to be a plausible evolutionary story about adopting the structural rules. Um, so that's basically, yeah, I think the simplest way I can explain it. Okay. Does that kind of wow. make some sense? Um, honestly, it's pretty complicated. I'm not sure I fully understand it, but um, that's probably just my fault. So, yeah. Um, I don't know. To me, it seems like like there's definitely distinctions here that I, I understand that there are distinctions, and I, I most of the time I think I understand the distinctions. But sometimes I just wonder, like, well, I guess to take a step back, like, why, why is this important? Or, like, why does it matter? Like, obviously, in real life, like, you don't have people claiming that they're Superman very often or... I don't know, like, you can always make distinctions, but how many of these distinctions actually make a difference in in real life? So, like, are there actual concrete cases in everyday life? Not that everything has to relate to everyday life. Like, I, obviously, there's some merit to just debating things in the abstract, but, like, does this also bear upon, like, pressing real-world issues? Or is it more just, like, a, I don't know, like, pure maths, for example, where people kind of, like, have these proofs that, you know are very abstract and then maybe 50 years later someone will like find a use for it in some technology but at the moment it's all like very abstract yeah no that's an interesting question i think i think like yes and no to whether there are real world implications um so i think you know to start off with i think one of the things that i like about epistemology in particular you know the study of of knowledge what it means to know how we should believe is that I think this is something that really applies to everyone. So, you know, there are a lot of aspects in philosophy that I think don't have that feature. So, for example, um, you know, like political philosophy is like how you should structure an ideal government or something like that, or like in a current governmental situation, what, what should you do? Um, but I don't have like, I'm not the president, like, I'm not really in a position where I have enough power to make any sorts of political decisions. So even if the political philosophers tell me, you know, what the best government to have is, there's not much that I can do. Um, but with epistemology, it's kind of, in a sense, like all in your head. It's about how you form beliefs, what you should believe, what kind of evidence you should try to find, things like that. And I think those are questions that really like apply to all of us so you know questions about how many times is it rational to like check that your stove is off before you leave your house that's something that epistemologists talk about or you know they actually talk about that thing like that, that, spe that specific oh. thing yeah is there an answer <laughs> so i think the thought is like the you know intuitively you can check like once or twice 
but there's something weird about like you know you check your stove and then you like go out the door but then it's like oh you go in and then like you put a thermometer in your stove to check the temperature to see if it's actually cold and then you kind of leave and then you like ask your neighbor to check like there's a certain point at which it gets like right, kind, right. kind of neurotic um yeah. and then i think the the epistemologists give a sort of answer to that which is something like you just in the same way that you need to be justified in having a belief right you can't just like form beliefs you know based on whatever you should form them based on your evidence you also need to be justified in um opening up a question of inquiry and sometimes you have enough evidence that you're not justified in opening up the question anymore um and this, I think, can make sense of a lot of intuitive cases. So, you know, a lot of people, right, are frustrated with, um, for example, like flat earthers or anti-vaxxers, right, who think like, oh, we need to like hold out and like do some more research on whether vaccines cause autism or whether the earth is round. Um, I think a, lar a large part of what drives our intuition about those kinds of people is that, hey, like we have all this evidence. Like it's, it's good to be sort of inquisitive and, you know, open-minded and all those things, but once you reach a certain threshold of evidence, you're really wasting your time um, trying to open up the inquiry again. And there's kind of a similar thing happening with the stove. Once you've like really like double and even triple checked it, there's something inappropriate or pathological about continuing to check the same thing over and over again. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I. That's interesting. You bring up like conspiracy theories and and all that because yeah i think that that is an area we see that's very relevant today with like misinformation and like fake news and social media where like people just have very different ideas about like what the actual reality is and like don't really know how to talk to each other about it and then like i feel like the strategies that people who are like anti-flat earth or anti-anti-vaxxers use are just like not the strategies that would actually speak to those groups so yeah it, feel, it seems like philosophy and epistemology specifically can actually shed a lot of light on why people would believe something that seems so perhaps you know not backed up by the evidence or fringe or whatever um but yeah any like i guess developments into 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 that i think are important in in today's world and maybe these have always been important but they're just becoming really more highlighted by the i guess global spread of of technology and and all that and social media and, and things like that but yeah no it's super interesting um so a question that i had actually on this on this note that it's both kind of an epistemological question and just sort of like a, a question about your procedure of how you operate as as a philosopher but i hear you and actually a lot of other philosophers often talk about like intuition as a starting point and saying like oh like people have an intuition that x um and then sort of like from there building like an argument like what role does intuition actually play is that is that like something where you just start with and then, you know, you follow your intuition at first and then you try to back it up based on some other principles or does intuition itself actually constitute evidence for a certain proposition or should we just disregard intuition entirely and try to work always from, you know, other principles or yeah, what's the role of intuition? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, so there, there is a really like rich field in epistemology in particular about intuition that asks all the questions you ask like yeah is it is it intuition are they evidence for things um and then sometimes people draw a distinction between you know like moral intuitions or philosophical intuitions and things like that so 
I am not personally very familiar with that that field and what the the big positions are, but I can say a little bit about my own sort of like personal like practice and views. If that's, yeah, 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 yeah. So I think the the way that I think of intuitions in my work, and I think this is largely the standard position, is they count for something, but they are defeasible in the sense that they can be overridden by countervailing considerations. Um, so, you know, like, what does this mean? Um, you know, like, let's say I have, um, like, let's, let's take a sort of famous ethical case that a lot of people think about, the trolley problem. So, mm -hmm. nice. yeah, <laughs> so uh, this is probably going to be familiar to people, but, you know, this is a case where you are by some train tracks and there's someone who's tied to the train tracks and they will be killed by an oncoming train unless you can switch the train to another set of tracks or maybe stop the train in some other way. Um, and then there's a question of, you know, let's say that there's two people tied to the train tracks and if you divert the train to a different set of tracks, you can save those two people, but at the expense of killing an innocent bystander that's on the, the track that the train would be diverted to. Um, and there's sort of different, different versions of this case. Um, there are cases about, you know, you should, like whether you should like push someone in front of the train um, in order to save two people who are tied, things like that. Yeah. So in those cases, like, Let's start out with like an easy case. So let's say that there are, um, you know, two people who are tied to the train tracks. Um, should you like push an innocent person in front of the oncoming train to save those two people? Um, a lot of people, myself included, have this intuition like, no, there's something wrong about that. It's like really unfortunate that the two people were tied to the train tracks by presumably an evil person. It's really unfortunate that they're going to die, but you can't just grab a random person and shove them in front of the train tracks to save those two people. Um, so people have that moral intuition. I have that moral intuition. Um, but then do you like a different case? You know, let's say that there are a thousand people who are tied to the train tracks. Are you allowed to push a random person in front of the train to save those thousands of people. Um, I think my intuition is a little more confused in that part. I think, wow, like a thousand people, that's like a ton of people. Am I really going to let a thousand people die just because I don't want to push this one person in front of the train? You know, and you can just keep upping the numbers. Um, yeah. Putting aside like, the question of why one person would stop the train, but somehow <laughs> the same train will mow, mow through a thousand people. <laughs> yeah, that's like philosophers do. It's like a special train, right? It's like the philosophers yeah. can stipulate this all the way. Or a really, really large person <laughs> that you're going to push. Yeah, yeah. It's like usually the people say like a person with like a really heavy backpack that's like somehow going to stop the train. Okay. So I think like this is a case where, you know, we, I have one intuition um, about the case with two people tied to the tracks. Let's say I have a different case intuition about the case where there are a million people tied to the tracks. Um, and, you know, there's a bit of a question of like, where does my intuition shift? It's like a little bit vague. It's unclear. Um, now, there's a, there's a couple things you could do. You could just say the nature of ethics is that it's vague and unclear. Um, or you might want to say, like, maybe my initial intuition 
about the two-person case was wrong. Maybe um, I thought that it, you know, killing one person to save two is inappropriate, but actually, like for consistency's sake, I have to say that any time you're saving more people than you're killing, that's justified or something like that. Yeah. That's that's yeah. not personally my view, um, but you can do these sorts of things where you kind of press on your intuitions. They give you maybe some um, kind of defeasible prima facie support for a thought. Um, but of course there can be other reasons to think, oh, actually maybe this intuition is wrong. And that, that works particularly well if we can give, um, we can tell a story about why the intuition would be wrong in the first place. Um, so in this case, I don't know, maybe we could say like, there's evolutionary reasons why we would think that, um, or you know, maybe we would say, we should actually reject the intuition about the million people because we could say like, oh, you know, our intu moral intuitions about cases with like that many people are unreliable because we were never, we were never sort of in situations in our evolutionary past where we had to consider ethical dilemmas involving so many people. And so like we weren't, um, we weren't like conditioned to like think about them in the same way that we were conditioned to think about cases with, with fewer people or something like that. Um, so I think that's that's how a lot of people see intuitions. They can like provide you some, you know, defeasible support. And certainly, if someone is saying something that sounds really counterintuitive, then that's a bit of a red flag. Um, but they're not the be all end all of philosophy. Yeah, yeah, it's it is super interesting because I don't know. I, I, at least in other fields, you know, you see a, a maybe something similar for intuition where it plays some role, but you can't like base everything on it but you see these like kind of really strange outlier cases where for example you have someone like Ramanujan the mathematician who's yeah. like famous for just intuitively just like intuiting certain formulas that were just like unbelievable like he would just be like oh yes there's an approximation for pi that is like the continued square root of like this over you know and it's just like and he's like yeah I just kind of that it just sort of felt you know, felt right to me. Felt yeah. right to me. <laughs> and then, so it's like unbelievable how that would actually work. It just, it just like baffles belief. But then some of them are also wrong. So like, he, he didn't have like a 100% track record. I mean, what he did get right was amazing. But it's not like it was like, you know, 100% um, error free. And then you also have these like really, really unintuitive results, which are some of the most fun and fascinating results like in mathematics, in computer science things like that, where, where things that you would not expect to be true at all, you know, end up being true. Like, I mean, I remember in, in like a game theory class, we learned about something called braces paradox, which is like, you know, this traffic scenario where there's this like imaginary road system. And basically, like, you use game theory to figure out what the um, sort of stable equilibrium of traffic is on this road system. And then by like adding an extra road, it actually makes the traffic worse. So it's like you, you're leaving everything exactly the way it was, and all you're doing is you're adding a new road that like connects two points in this network, and it literally makes things worse. And it's actually been like backed up in like real life as well, not just like theoretically in game theory. And it's like very unintuitive, but it's true, and you can prove it. Um, or like all sorts of like fun. I don't know if you ever watch like the Number File Math Channel. There's like all these like crazy, you know, very unintuitive results, which is sometimes the most fun. Um, so yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's it, it's it's something I I think about sometimes, um, and like what what role it should play. Like also in like, as you said, in in moral philosophy and reasoning, um, or in 
in or like other in epistemology, people like also talk about things like like people have really terrible intuitions about um, like probability, for instance, right? Mm, like yeah, the base yeah. rate fallacy and things like that. Um, and then there's a question of like, given that we know that we have all these we're like really prone to fallacious reasoning given that we know that we have these certain like cognitive biases like framing effects for instance um what kind of rules for belief should we have like should the rules for belief take into account that we are in some sense you know flawed beings or should we sort of ignore these facts about you know how our brain works and these sort of fallacies that we can be prone to have um and instead give rules like for like an ideal person in the kind of the same way that like economic economists give you know like oftentimes are talking about like ideal like fully rational like homo economicus type people mm-hmm. yeah and i think that's a that's i mean that's obviously like a really interesting philosophical question and i think there are people who who take a hard line and say we should only be doing the ideal stuff and then there are people who say we should um you know take into account the facts of our you know brain and biology and things like that and i think i fall sort of somewhere somewhere in the middle yeah yeah, yeah. what's interesting is that a lot of like the worst failures that you see at the policy level are by people who i think have an unrealistic view of human nature and like what how people actually sort of behave and that people are not always rational or not always you know thinking clearly um and you know if you base entire policies off of something like that then you could end up being really you know being in trouble if you, you know with wrong incentive structures or you know whatever it is but like there's still that doesn't mean there isn't a role for philosophy that doesn't mean that like certain people shouldn't be just thinking things through at a rational level um but i think it means that when you apply like i guess like applied philosophy or like if you're actually using it to like decide uh, then i think you need to take into account all sorts of other considerations you know like just the anthropological facts of of how people work and how it's it's often not this sort of clear-headed uh rational view on of, of things yeah yeah i guess my view is what you just said but i think also in addition people sometimes are misguided about what like they have like a view of what being a rational person or being a reasonable person involves um that maybe like isn't really right um so like you know for example like i feel like this is just like a pop kind of experiment that people know but like you know the marshmallow experiment where yeah, yeah, you yeah. give right yeah you give kids the delayed gratification yeah yeah so i feel like you know that people made like a really big deal of that maybe like a decade or two ago and then more recently people realized that this basically just tracks like socioeconomic status and then people have realized like oh wait a second like from the perspective of like the kid who is maybe hasn't been like in a stable environment for this time or you know is like doesn't like have good ex- like experiences with figures of authority or like is really hungry and like doesn't have like a stable source of food like actually like waiting like being like trusting that the experimenter is going to come back and give them two marshmallows like at a much later time is like not necessarily the reasonable thing to do like for someone like that like it, it might be reasonable to just like take the marshmallow because they can't 
like it wouldn't be reasonable to like trust that like the right right yeah be, so yeah. just with a different yeah different lens of looking at things yeah if i was like dying of thirst in the desert and someone offered me a glass of water now or two glasses in two hours uh i would take the one glass now i think <laughs> although i don't know well yeah maybe it would, it would depend on a lot of factors but I, yeah point taken i think it, yeah it was fascinating that depending on how you look at it or like it may track socioeconomic status later in life but it may not track like i don't know happiness or other things i mean yeah it might but not necessarily right so how, how you the metrics you use are gonna are gonna matter yeah mm, interesting interesting okay cool so um i guess to sort of move on to maybe one of our last couple of questions um i wanted to ask you just sort of taking a step back from epistemology although of course you're free to you're free to like use epistemology to answer this. Um, I guess if this is not too absurd of a question, what do you think is like the meaning of life or the purpose of life and, and what ideas influence the way you choose to live your life? Yeah. So I, I thought about this a lot and I, I don't know if I understand what the question, what the meaning of life is, but I think that there's, I think with some, an aspect of philosophy, there is definitely an aspect of philosophy that's really influenced the way that I, I think I conduct my life. And I think that's the fact that I think philosophy has allowed me to realize the like complexity of different ways of looking at the world. So I think maybe when I was younger, I had a really like, maybe idealized way of thinking about how things should go, um, both in philosophy and in everyday life. Like there would be sort of like true answers out there and I would just find those true answers and everything would be really, really clear. And any type of unclarity was something that was bad um, and ought to be avoided. And I think, you know, this, this has actually come up in a number of different projects that I've been working on recently. Um, one is a project on Emerson and trying to give sort of an analysis of Emerson in a way that will make sense to contemporary philosophers. Um, another actually comes from the sort of complicated topic we were talking about earlier with constructivism um, and the structural norms. But basically one thing that I realized is a lot of, um, a lot of the philosophers and philosophical views that I find very interesting, even if I don't necessarily agree with them, are views that require um, require looking at the world through like two or more like different and indeed like kind of incoherent or competing lenses. Um, so I think like a, a paper that really sort of motivated me to think about this is this paper that this philosopher Barry Marushik wrote about his his mother's death, um, and he talks about, you know, on one hand, you know, after someone you love has died, it really makes sense for you to, to grieve, right? Like their death was an awful thing for you and it's reasonable for you to feel sad. Um, on the other hand, it also seems reasonable, natural that, you know, after a certain point, you move on, um, you know, it might take a different amount of time for different people, but there's something maybe intuitively, again, intuition, there's something kind of intuitively 
odd about someone who is like just as upset like consistently um you know 10 years after the death of someone as they were like in the moments right after that person's passing you know we're there's a sense in which you know it they're 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 acting in some way that like maybe would make us worry about like men their mental health or something like that precisely because it seems like people do move on and it, it makes sense to sort of move on even even if you still miss someone even if you still you know think about them and are sad when you think about them um and that's kind of a puzzle because you know the fact that they died hasn't changed right so if you think that they've died is a re if you think the fact that they died is a reason for you to grieve then why does it matter whether you know no time has passed or 10 years have passed or like 60 years have passed like why should that matter if like the, the, the fact of their death is what makes it reasonable for you to grieve? Um, and where Marushik sort of ends up in the paper is saying, you know, these are sort of two, two kind of conflicting perspectives on the world. Um, and it's not as though like we have to pick one or the other, but it's just that like both sort of have to be true at the same time. And it's just this kind of like absurd situation. And I think that kind of idea that there's these two perspectives comes up, comes up a lot. So you know, in some sense, you know, we believe in science. We think you know the world is like, like the matter that's in the world is like reducible to fundamental physics um, and things like that. But at the same time, you know, many people, even people who are like atheistic or like secular people think you know there are rules about how I should behave you know there is like right and wrong you know there's like what's reasonable or unreasonable there are all these sorts of rules there and those rules um, don't seem to be something that can be reduced to fundamental physics you can't like point to like that particle and be like oh that's like the moral particle or like that's the like believe your evidence particle or anything like that um, and that can be really frustrating but it might just be that there's these like two incompatible perspectives for understanding the world and kind of the human condition is just kind of grappling and sort of jumping back and forth between those those perspectives and it's I think confusing and frustrating and sad certainly in the case like in the Marushik paper where it involved the death of a loved one um, but I think I've, I've grown to see those that type of complexity as something that gives certainly gives meaning to f the study of philosophy, but I also think that it gives meaning to our lives and it like enriches our lives um, and makes them, makes them like worth living in some way, kind of grappling with that idea of like us and the world and like how they relate to each other. Um, so that was, you know, that's kind of a lot of different kind of nebulous thoughts, but I think like appreciating that sort of complexity rather than trying to like iron it all out. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's something that I've really sort of appreciated more and it's, it's impacted how I live and it's, it comes from studying philosophy further. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know, what do you think? What do I think? Yeah, um, I don't think I disagree with anything that you said. Um, yeah, I think, I, I know what you mean. It's a, it's a weird question when people always ask like, well, what's the meaning of life? like. I mean, what does that even, what does that, what does that mean? What, what, does, what does it mean to say what the meaning of life is? I mean, I think there are different ways of phrasing it that might be better. Um, like you could say like, what gives you a sense of purpose in life or something like that? Or like what motivates you to like 
get out of bed in the morning. I mean, that's maybe kind of a depressing way of framing it, but that's already presuming that, like, life is inherently... <laughs> like, you wouldn't want to get out of bed if you had a choice. Um, but, um, I don't know. Th- those are, like, ways of, I guess, cashing it out um, into, like, terms that other people would uh, just, you know, maybe make more sense or be intuitive. Um, that that I, I find can be more productive to having a conversation about it. Um, one thing I keep coming back to when I talk about this, though, is the sense of wonder, which is, of course, where the name of this podcast comes from, Modus Mirandi, um, which I think, like, that's sort of, like, the best encapsulation that I think, regardless of what someone's background is, religiously or philosophically or whatever, it just, I think a lot of people can agree and be united in the sense that, oh, people want to pursue this this feeling of wonder where you you want to face the day, you want to go out and learn new things and, and share that knowledge, share that excitement about living you know live in such a way that you want to live and that it's sort of infectious and other people around you also want to live um and yeah like how that you actually take that can of course take many forms and it's not a prescription for one lifestyle per se uh there's not like one route to happiness i don't think um and of course wonder is not even like synonymous with happiness either right like you can't guarantee i mean i think happiness is another one of these like really ill-defined terms it's like well what do you mean by happiness there's like hedonism there's sort of like the um you know epicureanism there's you know just sort of contentment um you know, there's just like many ways of, of talking about happiness like life satisfaction looking back like on your deathbed um and again it's it's difficult to to you know i don't even necessarily trust people on their deathbed who like say oh i should have done this like really like if you could do like would you actually do things differently like i don't know like i think some of the things you hear like buzzfeed 21 things from people on their deathbed that they would like I don't know. I mean, your memories are probably a bit hmm, not not fully not fully worked. I don't know. Of course, I think it's it's a useful source of of data. It's it's a it's a data point as as uh, people like to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I just keep coming back to this sense of wonder, um, and I, to me, that's that's really profound. And I think like when I was a teacher, that like became like sort of a mantra for me of just like okay, like be teach in a way that like people are excited to learn that like I myself am excited to teach and like that's sort of like it's an you know otherwise like whatever your job is whether you're a student or a teacher or you know working on some other job like if you don't have that sense of wonder then you know what's something something's not right and I think that also guides like my interactions with people like try to you know treat people in a way that is consonant with with that right that that they are energized by you and that you can like benefit each other I, I think it's it's very interesting about sort of like human society I think like human society could be a lot better but it could also be a lot worse mm-hmm. like sometimes it's surprising that it's not better and people are like oh my gosh look at the world it's so awful but then at other times I think like hold on a second like that's not that's not giving us enough credit like it could be so much worse too you know like I think and I've talked about this in like a previous episode where I think like these sort of archetypal religious ideas of heaven and hell actually have these like very materialist readings as well in which like heaven and hell can just be interpreted as sort of like the best and the worst of you know the human condition um where you know things could be much much worse and generally we tend to see a progression out of really bad systems uh towards better ones but of course with reversions and there's no necessary direction to history but um, we're always going to be somewhere in the middle. We'll never be at a utopia. Like, we'll never live in a society where everyone is treated well all the time and there's no suffering. Um, but, you know, if you go to even, like, the worst disease-ravaged, war-stricken places, you'll see acts of charity and selflessness and uh, positive 
elements. It won't be 100% bad. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's actually this like YouTube channel that does movie reviews. And one of the, the ideas that came up, what's the channel called? It's called Like Stories of Old. Would highly recommend it, actually. It's a mm-hmm. really good YouTube channel. But um, like one of the, the themes was about, I think like either war movies or about like suffering in film and how um, basically like, you know, even though we often think of humans as being very depraved and there's all these post-apocalyptic films where society completely devolves into like anarchy and cruelty, there'd be elements of that. Yet in real life, what you see when there's like a disaster like Hurricane Katrina or whatever is that you see a lot of acts of selflessness and people like rising up to the challenge and helping each other. And so there's that like goodness that emerges as well. Um, and so you can have these like pockets of, of goodness amidst like a larger bleak picture. Um, so yeah, I think like you're always sort of like somewhere in between those those two things and you know, you have to try to contribute in some way um, to, to, I think, you know, help those around you and um, you know, uh, I, I think ultimately cultivate uh, something within yourself so that you are happy without compromising others' happiness. Like if you have cultivated your own approach to life in such a way that like you need to inflict suffering on others to be happy there's something wrong deeply wrong there um whereas like if you you know and this is this requires work you have to like work at it to cultivate a sense of self in which your happiness is like consistent with the happiness of others around you um but yeah so that's like sort of a i guess a roundabout answer it's like i mean part of part of it is yeah what what actually makes me it gives me a sense of purpose what what get, makes me get out of bed in the morning and then i think this inevitably it spills over into like an ethical framework and well how does then that influence the way you live and your your ethical code yeah yeah no i think that's i think what you were saying about the vote sense of wonder is actually like a much better way of like getting at what i was trying to get at because i think there's like this there's a sense in which like you know you can make everything like really simple if you want to um, you can like try to, and I think like this is like also just like you see this about like political discourse or just like discourse in general. Like people try to like get rid of the nuance or like you know they want like snappy slogans and stuff like that. Um, but I think you know if you actually look around at the world, there's like I feel like there's like so many interesting things. Like you know just like to take an example, like the fact that like we think you know I think all of us think at some level that there is like rules about what we should do like what's reasonable even if it's something as basic as like you know i shouldn't um like eat garbage like that's like unreasonable like something like that like (laughs) if you think about it like the fact that there are these like reasons at all is like kind of crazy like what what is a reason like what is this thing that like is like pulling at me like making it the case that like i should do this thing and like should do this other thing like in a way it's like if the, I feel like the more I think about it, the more it sounds like something kind of, like, spooky and, like, supernatural. Or I think, like, something that we were talking about with our sisters on Instagram, like, the other day was, like, how, you know, all of us are, like, mostly, you know, bacteria and, like, non-human cells. Like, you know, what is this, like, and, like, we know that there are all these, like, causal forces that are, like, pushing on us. Like, you know, we have, like, our brains and things like that, and then we have this, like, evolutionary story and our story of our upbringing um and then like how the little bacteria in our bodies are behaving like and yet we think of ourselves as like having free will and like having this sense of self and if you think about it like that's also sort of crazy like where where can i find myself 
like the person who I think I am in this like totally like physical you know fleshy creature um so I, I feel like yeah that's that was sort of my way of getting out what you were saying which is like there's there is like wonder out there if you if you're wanting to find it um and for me too I think like you know I I always think like wow like the fact that there's so much more for me to learn and like think about like that's that's what makes me really excited to get up in the morning yeah 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 I think yeah no better way to to end it I think that's yeah I, I agree with that and you know once again just want to thank you for, for coming on and discussing I know I've, I've taken up a bit of your time but I think it's been uh, it's been a really good time and I always like talking about things I don't know that much about like philosophy and learning new things and uh, encouraging and feeding my own sense of wonder so thanks again Tez thank you so much Thomas